So in Acts chapter 2, Acts 2, 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. The coming of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit for 2,000 years has been a point of contention. On the first day, on the day of Pentecost, you had those that were amazed and hungry and those that were skeptical and scoffing. In the congregation today, same crew exists. Some who are saying, more Lord, more Lord, more Lord. Others who are saying, hold on a second. Not so fast, preacher man. And so in the midst, we understand that this is nothing new. But there are answers. The question was asked, what does this mean? It's right there in your text. What does this mean? Well, let's find out together. Father, in the name of Jesus now, bless your holy word and bless those that hear it with faith. Amen. Be seated. I love Acts chapter 2. I'd live there if I could, but I can't. But I am going to hunker down there for a little bit of our time together today. There's three things really I want to share with you today. We're going to look at it from God's point of view, the disciples' point of view, and then the crowd's point of view, because really those are the three principal parties that are involved in Acts chapter 2. So let's just start and, and, and view this thing from God's perspective and look at God's sovereign invasion. In the first three verses, we have God's sovereign invasion. Remember the last time we left off in Acts 1, Jesus had told the disciples, I want you to go to Jerusalem, you wait there, the power is coming. When the power comes, you're going to be my witnesses, but you got to go to Jerusalem and you got to wait. And when you wait and in the Father's timing, the power is going to come, the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit is coming. And then Jesus rose back to heaven. And here we find them some days later and they are in the house waiting. And the Bible says it, the timing of the invasion, this invasion that we just read about, the timing of it was when the day of Pentecost arrived. 
Now, for sake of time, I'm not going to go through the Jewish calendar and the feast and all of that, but this is the second feast among the Hebrews. This was uh, the, the time where they would have been gathering, as in the other feast, coming to Jerusalem. Crowds would have been swelling. would have been a time of great sacrifice, a time where people were sensitive to the things of God, and you got people from all over the area that are still in Jerusalem or coming to Jerusalem. And so God, in his sovereign invasion, wanted to make sure that this birthing of the church, this radical battle, baptism of the Holy Spirit, when it found the Jews in Jerusalem, that it happened at a time where there would be people from different parts of uh, the empire there, Jews from all these different areas, they have different dialects, different speech patterns, different languages, and yet they all came to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. Now, notice the target of the invasion. Because God, on this initial outpouring, was going to be very specific. The Bible says that they were all gathered together in one place. So you had about 120 people. 120 people that were followers of Jesus. They had just seen him ascended. He had been crucified, resurrected. He showed himself alive for 40 days. And then he ascended back on high. Then 10 days later, here they are on the day of Pentecost. And they're in a prayer meeting, unified, all in one accord. Now, I'm just going to make a passing statement at that. All of us want the power of Pentecost. All of us want the movement of the Holy Spirit. All of us want the fullness of all that God has for his people. And amongst those people, you and I as individuals would be wise to say, Lord, I don't just want the church in general to have all that you want. I want all that you want for me. But notice this. It's going to find us most often in the context of community. It's going to find us most often in the context of unified community, praying community, waiting community, seeking community. They weren't out, you know, buzzsawing their way through intense evangelism. They weren't doing major discipleship. They were coming together and they were in a season of waiting, but they were waiting with each other. And there's something beautiful about a group of people who've matured in the faith enough not to force action to happen, not to counterfeit it, not to drum it up in the flesh, but to wait on the Lord. And then when the Lord chooses that timing, it is invariably going to fall on people who have said, we are not only one with you, Father, but we have committed to be one with each other. And that's what was happening there. So they were already a called out group of people, but they were a called out group of people, followers of Jesus, justified before God, forgiven of their sins, fully atoned for, and yet they were not yet baptized in the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, go wait, and the Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to baptize you. So what did it look like? What did it sound like? What did it feel like? Man, look at verse 2. Here's the thunder of the invasion. Notice the word there, suddenly. It gives the air of out of nowhere. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now, Jesus had taught near the beginning of his ministry, John chapter 3, to a very religious man named Nicodemus. He said, Nicodemus, the Holy Spirit is like the wind. You, you can't really tell where it came from. You don't really know where it goes when it leaves you. But the Holy Spirit in its movement is like the wind. Now, when he blows in, you have no idea that it was coming. And when he blows out, you don't know what he's doing next. But the key is this. When he's there, you know it. And so when the Holy Spirit came, this was like an unprecedented event in biblical history. It was not repeated in this way ever again. And so one of the things we're going to look at is some of the arguments that I learned because I, I, I am aware that I'm, 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 I'm addressing two different groups of people here today. One who really believed that there's an ongoing reality of Pentecost and others who believe it was closed in the canon of Scripture and it's, it has no bearings whatsoever. But in this moment, 
They're just praying. And all of a sudden, it sounds like a tornado. It sounds like just a roaring wind. If you've ever had the misfortune of being in a tornado or being near one, it is a terrifying sound. It's a terrifying feeling. We had some come near our house back in Duluth when Amy and I uh, lived in the pastorium, and it was the closest we had ever come. It's a howling, but this one was not outside the room. It was in the room where they were gathered. And so it was audible. The coming of the Holy Spirit was audible, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. That means as Luke is writing the book of Acts that however it was reported to him, the idea was that it owned the moment. The coming of the Holy Spirit owned the moment. There was no room for debate. There was no room for doubt. There was nobody saying, you think this is it. Everybody instantaneously connected what was going on the moment with the promise that Jesus repeated that the Father originated. The promise of the Holy Spirit was the Father's promise came through Jesus, and now the Holy Spirit was moving in that upper room. Now, here's where it gets a little kooky. Verse number three, kooky's not a Bible word, but it fits. The torch of the invasion, the thunder, the target, the timing, and the torch of the invasion. Here comes the fire. Divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. I don't know what to do with this. Have you ever seen any of the artwork with this where some gifted artist tries to, to paint this? I've seen some really bad renditions of this and some pretty cool renditions. But the fact of the matter is there's mystery interwoven in all of it. Um, there is some sort of presence visible. Notice, the coming of the Holy Spirit was audible. The roaring wind. It was visible. They saw something shift in the room. And in this case, we're given the idea and the best that it could be articulated was that there was some sort of flame or fire, cloven tongues of fire is how I learned it in the King James. And, and it rested or it lighted upon each of them. So if I'm in the room, I'm looking at the person across from me and I'm seeing something. God, the spirit is manifesting in some way. Fire in the Bible is almost always uh, attached to some form of power, either holy power or judicial power, or even at times uh, the, the judgment. And so when we see fire, there's always some kind of connection with power. And in this case, it was emblematic of the power of the Holy Spirit who was now lighting upon each of them. Big dynamic difference between this and the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon a person. That person would be empowered to either give a great prophecy, preach a great message, do some mighty deed. But then the Holy Spirit would seemingly withdraw. Uh, we've, we're teaching this on Wednesday night. That's what we call um, the, the visitation the visitation of the Holy Spirit. But from Pentecost on, we have it so much better. We have the habitation of the Holy Spirit, that he inhabits us. And it's marked here that it wasn't just Peter and James and John in the upper room, the big guys, the apostles, that got the dancing flame on their head, but everybody got it. And so what Jesus is saying here is there's a new equalizer in the kingdom that it is not simply that people have different roles. Yes, we all have different roles in the kingdom, but nobody has a diminished douse or dose of God. It means we have God in us, God with us, God upon us. And they could hear the coming of the Holy Spirit and they could see the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then they began to speak. So it was audible, it was visible, and it was verbal. Now, just let your Bible say what it says. They began to speak with other tongues. Now, I don't have a, a full time 
to do a whole lesson on tongues. If you really want to get that, come on Wednesday nights. We're working through the gifts of the Spirit. It just by way of disclaimer, I fully believe in tongues. I practice the gifts of tongues. I have since the year 2003, both primarily in a private devotion as unto the Lord, but at times in smaller groups. It is not part of our normal worship practice here because we believe that if a tongue, a prophetic tongue is given in the church, it must be accompanied by uh, an interpretation of that. So you're not, you're not going to see a whole lot of prophetic tongues here. But in this moment, it is almost as if nobody got a vote. God said, I'm about to do something and boom, he did it. Now, when these people moved out of the upper room, and Dustin's going to be covering that next week, they were speaking in tongues. We read it here, but these were, this was not what, what some critics would call incoherent babble. Um, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't unintelligible because the people that were gathered there, Jews from different parts of the world, world, were hearing these people that were now filled and baptized by the Holy Spirit. They were speaking in languages, and they're saying, that's my hometown dialect. How in the world is this Galilean? And to be a Galilean was kind of synonymous with not being highly educated. Not, not that sharp, not the swiftest gazelle in the flock. Galileans were, were just basic kind of blue-collar industry workers, that kind of environment. And all of a sudden, they're speaking fluently languages that they've never learned. And so they're coming out of the house. The people in the streets heard the wind. They didn't see the fire necessarily. That was in the upper room. But as the, as the disciples, 120 of them, just put yourself there. Are y'all with me? 120 people busting out of a prayer room, filled with the Holy Spirit. Nobody's ever seen this. They've just experienced something in this tight, clustered room, and now they're spilling out in the streets, and they're, they're in, in fluency, speaking languages that they've never known, and all of these people that are from different parts are hearing them worship and praise God. They're magnifying God in languages that they had never heard. So the, the whole thing, forgive me if, if you're uncomfortable with this, the whole thing from the human perspective was chaotic. It was crazy. It was intense. It was stunning. Say, Jeff, I thought God wasn't the author of confusion. Let me give you something. Just because you get confused doesn't mean that God authored your confusion. The Bible doesn't say that wherever God is, nobody ever gets confused. Really? Read your Bible. Man, you've got some of the deepest saints in the world scratching their head, crying, falling on their face, saying, depart from me, I'm sinful. I mean, yeah, and listen... The fact that we get confused doesn't mean that God authored that. And so I was taught a long time ago, well, hey, listen, if this kind of stuff is repeated today, that, that, that's confusion and God never authors the confusion. Well, let me just say, if that's the, the rule we're keeping, well, how do we explain Acts chapter 2? Because before we get to the end of the passage, everybody's confused. They don't know what's going on. You say, why is that, Jeff? Well, because his ways are higher than your ways. And his thoughts are higher than your thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways higher than your ways and his thoughts higher than your thoughts. So there are times where you just got to make up your mind. You cannot figure out God. So a lot of Christians, I'm just going to meddle a little bit here for a minute. A lot of Christians are depressed and bitter and frustrated with God because he won't let them figure him out. Do, do we really have that kind of spiritual audacity? That we think, oh man, it's been six months in a discipleship course. I got God down pat. I got him. I got this. And yet sometimes when God operates outside of the box that we try to squeeze him into, uh, we direct that, that unease either to him or to other people. 
Well, let's walk through this, okay? I'm going to give you a couple of instances. I'm going to, I'm going to teach just a few moments here. One of the arguments, and if you come from a charismatic or a Pentecostal background where tongues and the gifts of the Spirit were never controversial, it's no big deal. I mean, you went from babbling as a baby to you know, speaking in tongues as a toddler, and that, that happens a lot of the time. And so for some people, they literally say, what's the big deal? Well, it is a big deal in a lot of places, and not everybody that struggles with the issue of tongues um, is, a, is a terrible Christian. Because we all know that we've seen a lot of abuses of the gifts of the Spirit. And our tendency is, well, man, if that's the gifts of the Spirit, I don't want to have anything to do with that. And I don't want to have anything to do with that crowd that signs off on that stuff. So it's a real issue. But love dictates that we walk through this thing together. And ultimately, both sides can't be right. That's the thing to remember. That's the hardest part. I know we live in a generation where everybody gets a trophy, okay? Everybody gets first place, right? Well, it doesn't work that way when it comes to doctrine. Uh, two opposing things cannot e be equally true. And so either the gifts are valid or they're not. And, of course, you know by now that we believe clearly that the Scripture teaches that the gifts are. So, but one of the things I was taught was, okay, Jeff, if tongues are valid today, how come it doesn't look like Acts chapter 2? Because if that's what tongues are, hey, man, where's the rushing wind? Hey, I don't, I don't see down there at First, First Charismatic Church of Lawrenceville, I don't, I don't see down there, I don't see any dancing tongues of fire on their head. I don't hear any rushing wind. And I, by the way, they're always supposed to be in a known language. And so automatically, out of Acts chapter 2, there is the tendency to hijack the entire concept of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and tongues and box it in and say, this is the way it has to be if it's valid. Let me challenge you on that because there's one problem with that kind of thinking. There's four other instances in the book of Acts where the baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs with different people groups and none of them look the same. Every time it's different. And so, as a courtesy to you, you didn't ask for it, but I'm going to have fun giving it, we're going to walk through those. Because here in Acts chapter 2, we've got Jewish Christians baptized in the Holy Spirit. And let me tell you what it, how it was described. In Acts chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, it was described as involving moving wind with a roaring sound with visible flames and verbal tongues. There you have it. The baptism, I say this, is the baptism of the church, Church Universal. Here is the baptism of the church, these Jewish Christians. However, that does not mean that there are not subsequent and even individual baptisms that come later. You're not going to find that written in Scripture. There's a one and done, that's it, this is it, and now we just kind of take a parcel of what happened 2,000 years ago. We get to dip our toe into biblical history, and because uh, the Holy Spirit baptized the church 2,000 years ago, when you get saved, you're part of the church, and that's your baptism in the Holy Spirit. That's the way I was taught, and I, I can't substantiate that with Scripture. Look in, well, you don't have to look there, but in Acts chapter number 8, this is where the Samaritans are baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, the Samaritans were a historical people group that had mixed descent. Uh, there's some history to it, but when the, the, the land was repopulated, after the captivity, you had Jews that intermarried with Gentiles, and there became what was crassly called uh, by the Jews in, in, in a view of a half-breed. They had a little bit of a detesting of the Samaritan. Samaritan Jews didn't like each other because the Jews thought that they were just kind of uh, diluted in their Judaism, in their Abrahamic uh, race. 
And the Samaritans picked up on that and they just pushed back and they said, we don't like you either. And so you had this hostile group. And here's, here's amazing. Two people groups that can't get along. They're religiously divided. They're racially divided. They're socially divided. And, and God the Father says, yeah, I'm actually going to teach y'all how to love each other. And what I gave to my Jewish children on the day of Pentecost, we flash forward to the book of Acts chapter number 8, and now the Samaritans receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it looks very differently. When it's described in Acts chapter 8, it occurs subsequent to them being uh, saved after their water baptism, but it comes to them after the apostles went up to them and prayed for them very specifically to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They were prayed for, and then it is imparted to them by the laying on of hands, and that didn't happen in Acts chapter 2. So by the time you get to the second revelation of the baptism of the Holy Spirit on the Samaritans, it looks nothing like the first one. This one involved the apostles laying on of hands. By the way, a practical moment to pastor you here. Why do, when people come forward, why do we lay our hands on them? It's, it's simple. It's biblical. It's a biblical act. We don't need to second guess it. We don't need to improve upon it. We don't need to figure out everything about it. It's just been part of the church's history since really before the birth of the church. The people of God have been involved in lifting hands and laying hands. But very clearly... In the book of Acts, part of the impartation process for the Holy Spirit to come upon people is sometimes imparted through the laying on of hands. Now, you didn't see that in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, it seemed like a, just a sovereign move of God. But in Acts chapter 8 with the Samaritans, it came through the mediation of people, people laying on their hands. By the way, in Acts chapter 8, no wind, no flame, no roar. And by the way, no verbal tongues were specifically mentioned. And yet they prayed for them to receive the baptism of the Spirit. And the Scripture indicates that that's exactly what happened. Why am I going to this great length to tell you this? I'm trying to loosen up your grip at trying to hold God to your ideas about how it has to happen. And, and friends, that's a huge part of our spiritual growth. If you're holding God and you're trying to tie God to a, a stake in the ground that says you've got to operate like this, my friends, you are never going to grow beyond that two-by-two two little patch of theology that you've got. It's not going to serve you well. Then you get down into Acts chapter number 10, and we move even further out. Remember what Jesus said? Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the earth, which indicates the Gentiles. Well, in Acts chapter 10, here comes the baptism of the Spirit on the first Gentiles. Watch this. Uh, I'm not going to read the verses, but reference them. Acts 10, verses 44 through 48. How is it described there? The Holy Spirit sovereignly falls on them during Peter's sermon. This is great. And it spontaneously resulted in tongues and the praise of, uh, the praise of the God of the Jews, these Gentiles, are spontaneously, spontaneously baptized in the Spirit, and they immediately begin speaking in tongues right in the middle of Peter's sermon. And then and they start praising God. And by the way, this is different than it was in Samaria because this occurred prior to their water baptism. And again, no flame, no laying on of hands. That's different. No roar, no wind. It's completely different. I love this because... Peter didn't want to be there in the first place. If you're familiar with Acts chapter 10, Peter, God had to give Peter like repeated visions to get up and go to Cornelius' house and just to preach the gospel. And Peter's opening statement is this. You know I'm not supposed to be here with y'all. 
That's what he says in Acts 10. He's got, so I'm getting Gentile all over me. I mean, just, I, I, he didn't feel like he was supposed to be there. And God took Peter's just almost lackluster desire to be there. And Peter opens up and says, well, let me begin to tell you about the God of the Jews. And Peter starts waxing eloquent. You know, the preacher gets in first gear and then he gets out of first gear. He's moving into second. Before he could get to third gear, the Holy Spirit said, that's enough, Peter. Boom. Boom. And all of a sudden, these Gentiles are yabba-dabba-doing. I mean, they are, you bought a Hyundai, should have bought a Hyundai. You, you tie my bow tie, untie my bow tie. And they're, they're, they're just speaking in tongues and they're glorifying God. And by the way, if you read through that chapter, Peter and, the, and his posse, they're all Jewish. They're just sitting there saying, what in the world has happened here? Well, the Gentiles just got baptized. And it looked nothing like when the Jews did. And it looked very dissimilar to when the Samaritans did. And so automatically, this is what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to get us to see God reserves the right to remain creative. God is not some lab coat adorned scientist. I, I think so often we've pictured the, the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Joel 2 and Acts 2 reveal the prophecy from Joel so at least 500 years before Jesus Christ. And, and the verb is that he will pour out the Holy Spirit. And yet in our mind, in Western civilization, we picture like a lab coat adorned God with a little eyedropper and filling little test tube Christians with a drop of the Holy Spirit, and a drop of the Holy Spirit, and a drop of the Holy Spirit, and a drop of the Holy Spirit. Next row, a drop here, a drop here. Let me tell you what it's more like if you, if you just stick to the biblical narrative. It, it's more akin to God having a divinely sized, like, wash tub basin, and filled and just saying, Hurrah! and dumping it out, and boom, people just get hit. Now, if, if you're really orthodox and dignified, you're going to struggle with that metaphor. I'm just happy to let you struggle with it because that is closer to the biblical revelation than the eyedropper thing. My friends, Lord, help me. Sometimes you hear the ice cracking beneath your feet while you're preaching. <laughs> Y'all don't egg me on, man. I do not need it. Peter, Jose, settle down. Y'all be quiet. Come on. <laughs> Got two guys in here just salivating. They got it running down. Come on, man. <laughs> Listen, the, the reality is this God's not a dignified Baptist. Now, I, I spent my whole life as a Baptist, so I can say that. I don't mean any ill will, but I can say the thing God, God is not a starchy Presbyterian. He, you know, He's not a contemplative goatee stroking Methodist. You know, hmm. And He's not an overly liturgical Catholic. That's just not God, that's not Him. God is God. He's unlike you. He's unlike me. And we better get used to it. Because when we, when we quit framing God up in our denominational expectation of Him, we will begin to see Him moving as He desires to move. And some of you may say, well, Jeff, He's sovereign. He can do whatever He wants. Well, tell that to Jesus in Nazareth. Because the Bible says when Jesus went to Nazareth, very little happened. Why? Because they didn't have faith. They didn't believe him. And by the way, they rejected him because they kept looking at him saying, we think we know who you are. I don't know how you learned all this stuff, but you're the carpenter's boy. I know your mama. I know your sisters. I know your brothers. I don't know why you're in. And the Bible says, and there Jesus could do no mighty works because of their unbelief. So I do exalt God as the sovereign God of heaven. He doesn't need my permission to do anything. But in his sovereignty, he has determined that some things only get done according to the level of the expectation on, on behalf of the people that want to see him do something. 
And so if we will increase our appetite and take our grubby little human fingerprints off of the Almighty, he may start doing things that, we, 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 that would constitute revival in our generation. So back to the text. I am having a lot of fun this morning, and I hope that it's edifying, but if it's not, I'm still having fun. Acts 19. Here we've got some, this is really cool. This is the, the disciples of John the Baptist when they get baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so it's described as a group of men. There were a dozen of them. And they only had an elementary understanding of the gospel of Jesus. And they remind me of, of me back in the 90s because the, the, uh, Paul comes up and he, and he says, hey, have, have you guys received the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And their answer was, what's the Holy Spirit? We've never heard of the Holy Spirit. They literally told them that. So these were people that had attached themselves to Jesus. They had a modicum of belief. They had never been baptized into Jesus, both neither by water, and they had never heard of the Holy Spirit. And yet on some level, they were identifying as people of the way. They were identifying in some level as Christians. And so, so Paul comes up there. And it was before their water baptism. They had never heard of the Holy Spirit. They had never been uh, baptized in repentance unto Jesus. And so Paul comes up there, and he's just like, oh, we've got an issue here. They're trying to live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit. He says, come here. And he lays his hands on them, and they get baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, this is different because, boom, they started speaking in tongues. But watch what else happened. They began to prophesy. Acts chapter 2, no prophecy. Acts chapter number 10, no prophecy. And here you've got these guys in Ephesus. They're not only speaking in tongues. I mean, they haven't even been baptized yet in the water. And now they're prophesying. So God didn't follow the rule book that we lay out for him. He didn't then and he doesn't now. You say, well, Jeff, isn't he a God of order? Yeah, he's a God of his own ordering. I dare you. Hand God your plans. Go ahead. See what he does. He'll chuckle a little bit. He'll read him. He'll say, that's good. That's, that's a good one. But the rest of this? Are you kidding me? You're aiming too low. You're aiming way too high. How about I take your plans. Now, don't, I'm going to crumple them up, but don't panic. Don't panic. I'm going to crumple up your plans. I'm going to set them aside. I'm going to get eyeball to eyeball with you. And I'm going to teach you how much I love you and how much you can trust me. And I'm going to lead you on a path that will prove to be infinitely better than your plans that I just crumpled up. Somebody needed that this morning. And it comes that way with the spiritual gifts. So before I finish this up, we've only got a couple of verses left. So that equates into an hour and 15 minutes. And uh, I'm kidding. I, I really wanted to share that with you because I have a deep compassion for people that came from where I came from. And there's a reason why God ambushed me in 2003. I'm, I don't know that I've given this testament. I probably have. I don't know if I've given it here. But I'm going to share this with you at the risk of being misunderstood. It's being live streamed. It's being recorded. It'll go on TV, and I'm fine with that. In, in the late 1990s, I became theologically convicted that what I had been taught about the gifts of the Holy Spirit by people that loved Jesus, but they were wrong. And I, I started seeing that everything I had been taught had no Bible attached to it. 
At best, there was a verse hijacked from here, cherry-picked from here, woven together in a thin strand here, and laid before me as an uncompromising doctrine. And all it took was one tug on the string, one question, and the whole thing fell apart. And so I started saying, man, this, these people I respect, they love the Lord, but this actually isn't biblical to say that the gifts have stopped. But because of where I was, both in my private journey and where I was vocationally at that time as a, a subordinate pastor, I was a, um, an assistant pastor at Meadow Baptist Church, you know, part of it was probably I was a little afraid, but a lot of it was I wanted to respect where I was and the people that were over me. So I, I entered into a three or four year private study and just became increasingly convinced that the gifts of the Spirit are for now. And that the reason we needed them was not so we could, you know, hang the title charismatic or put a flame on our church sign outside. It was because we need these gifts to properly glorify the Lord and to serve one another. And what we had done is we had replaced it with good intentions and educations and well-oiled ministry machinery. But most of us, we couldn't defeat, we couldn't defeat the enemy I was watching marriages fail constantly. I was seeing people that, that, you know, when we got sick, we're just basically saying, well, let's just pray and let's just, you know, maybe God will heal us. And so there was no pursuit to, to really expect God to do anything. We were basically, I think, in a way, honoring God, twiddling our thumbs, waiting for the kingdom to come and failing to recognize the kingdoms now and failing to realize that the Holy Spirit does this stuff now. So in about the year 2000, I, well, maybe 2001, I just, I, I got tired of it being a doctrinal exercise. And I finally just started saying, Lord, I want everything you've got for me. Lord, it may blow up in my face. It may affect my ministry. I may lose it. It may affect my home because I married a good old Southern Baptist girl. And um, I, I was, I mean, my whole world was in a Baptist bubble, but I was dying on the inside. I wanted God. I, I, I knew there was more. I knew it. And yet I didn't have any charismatic friends. None. And because I was taught, stay away from them. <laughs> They're granola Christians, a bunch of fruits, flakes, and nuts. Amen. That's, that's Dustin's line. But my, my thought was, I, you know, I mean, I just didn't have anything. So it was me and the Lord. And I became pastor of Meadow Baptist Church and uh, interim pastor in the summer of 02. And then they ran out of candidates and made me the full-time pastor in November of 02. And all during that time, I was like, wow, this is great. I'm the pastor, and I have no idea what I'm doing. I am in big trouble. They don't know it yet, but I know it. And Jesus, I need you. Give me everything you've got for me. So I walk into my office, and I was very disciplined in my prayer life. And I, I would get up at usually 4.30, 4 o'clock, 4.30 in the morning. I'd go into my office. I'd read for an hour. I would pray in English for an hour. And that was just my thing. And it was great. It was glorious. I learned a bunch of stuff. Felt like I had a, a great commune with God. But on that day, when I walked into my office, and I, I think it was a Monday or a Tuesday. It was early in the week. And I sat down. I was in my normal prayer time. I'm going to tell you. I, I, I can't even try to explain it. I'm just going to describe it. In my office, the atmosphere shifted. A joy started filling me like I had never felt before. And I'm just praying in English, and I'm just, I'm a good old Baptist pastor. I had my shirt and tie on on a Monday. I mean, I'm just sitting there. I'm just like, this is great, man. God's good. The birds are singing. The sky is beautiful. You know, I'm a happy guy. And, and as I'm praying, I felt it. I felt something within, somewhere here in the belly and moved up. And I'm going to tell you this, it's embarrassing. But as I'm praying and worshiping God, I, I let something out. I was like, a -da -da -do. and I was like, 
I literally clamped my hand over my mouth and said, I'm sorry. I told the Lord because I had so much religious indoctrination that if tongues came out of my mouth, I, there was a guy in our church at that time that wrote tracks about it being demonic. So I was processing all this stuff. And so I just, okay, Jesus, bless your holy name. You are good. Thou art good. I pulled out my best King James stuff to counteract that moment of tongues. And, and I just, and all of a sudden, the same thing. It was, I got up. I pushed back from the desk. I literally left my office. That was the end of prayer time that day because I didn't know what to do. As I walked around the hall, I knew that was not the devil. That, that was the Lord, but I'm not allowed to do that because I'm a Baptist. So the next day I came back in and it was the elephant in the room. It was just me, God, and the elephant. Amen. <laughs> I sat down. <clears throat> Here we go. Prayer time. Repeat performance. And listen, I say this to my shame, and maybe it'll rescue some of you that are afraid what your family will think or your church will think or your, your old spiritual leaders will think. I quenched the spirit on that second day, and I literally told the Lord, I, I can't do this. I, I can't do tongues, Lord. I can't do it. And for almost two years, I never did again. And in the back end of that two years, and I'll condense. Let me truncate this testimony because I know what time it is. On the back end of those two years... I went through such ministry blessing. The church was growing. Everything I was doing was working. God was so merciful to me. The church was just doing amazingly. People were coming alive. People were being saved and baptized. The choir was growing. The music was growing. Um, I was having a few problems here and there, but that was just signs that God was with us. But on the inside, my private walk, you need to know something about your pastors. Uh, we have a private walk with Jesus that is much more important than our public ministry on a stage. And privately as a Christian, I was flourishing as a pastor, but privately as a Christian, I was hungry. So I was saying, Lord, I can't do this without you anymore. And about 2005, I had a fresh surrender to the Lord. And ever since that season in 05, it was in the spring, uh, tongues and the pursuing of the spiritual gifts has been a regular part of my life. But listen, I was sovereignly baptized in the Spirit in 03. I did not ask God for tongues. I've already testified that I didn't really want it. I, was, I didn't know what to do with it. But God, in His sovereign wisdom, knew what was going to be happening in 08, 2010, 2013, and lo and behold, 2015, where this issue radically transformed the direction of what was then Meadow Baptist Church and allowed us to become one with Cornerstone Fellowship. Why? Because the God of the gifts is real and the gifts from the God are real. So that is my testimony. You don't have to, you don't have to amen it, sign off on it, or applaud it, but I, I'm, I'm going to give it. Now, back to the text, and I really do. I've only got a couple of verses, but I wanted to share that with you. So let's go back to Acts chapter 2. So we've seen all the different places where the baptism of the Holy Spirit finds different people groups. And the whole reason I did that and then gave my testimony is to show you that it doesn't have to look like Acts chapter 2 for you. If you're waiting on Acts chapter 2 and assuming it's going to look like that for you, you're going to miss it. It is highly unlikely that the flames are going to dance on your head and the wind's going to howl. It's probably not going to happen. That would be great. Lord, right now, that would be awesome. You know, I would love that. 
that's probably not going to happen. But, but God may choose to, to, to work with you like he did there in, in um, uh, Cornelius' house. Right in the middle of the, the sermon, the Holy Spirit just started pouncing on people. Or maybe it's like the guys in Ephesus that when Paul laid his hands on them, and we're going to have altar ministry time this morning. And listen, we're not opposed to laying hands on you. If you want to receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit, whatever you want to call it, the baptism, the fullness, your prayer language, I don't care what we call it right now. What I'm saying is we're not, we're not as scared to lay hands on you. If you want to receive, maybe that's the way it comes. But for some of you, it might just be one of those moments where um, it's you. And your nice little English or whatever your native language is, your, your prayer time in your native language, and you're just on the back end of a season of saying, God, there's got to be more. Why am I empty? Why can't I win? Why am I defeated by this struggle in my flesh? Why, Lord, why can't, why can't I, 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 I pray and lay hands on people and then be healed? Lord, why, why is what I see in the revelation of Acts, why does it feel like history to me instead of you today? So back in Acts chapter 2, they burst out into the street. Look at the crowd's initial confusion. They were stunned. Verses 5 through 11, it's a lot of verses there, I'm not even going to read it, but it basically says that this diverse crowd heard their own languages glorifying God. So they knew something was up. That's about the work about the, Holy, the work of the Holy Spirit. People that are open to the Lord, they will recognize at times something's going on here. Something bigger than me, something outside of me, something I can't quite get my mind wrapped around. And that was most of that crowd that day. But go further with me into Acts chapter 2 and in verse number 12. Watch this. These people found themselves unable to explain the phenomenon that was happening right before them. They couldn't explain it. They, they were all amazed. That means their minds were blown. I mean, they were like, what? But they were also perplexed because this is the way it works. You register through your senses that something is happening, but then your brain says, <clears throat> I don't have a grip on what's happening. So your senses are flowing, but your brain comes in and says, now, wait a minute. Something's going on here that I can't get myself wrapped around, and that leads to the perplexity. So the amazement, which is good and holy and awesome, because that's where the Spirit is being ministered to, and, and, and you are recognizing, oh, God is doing something, but then the intellect tries to take over. And the intellect says, wait a second. And so now it goes from being amazed with God to being perplexed at what's going on. And so immediately, look at our tendency. They said, what does this mean? Immediately, they're trying to unscrew the inscrutable. They're trying to figure out the impossible. They're trying to make sense of an unprecedented manifestation of the third person of the Godhead. And, and, they, and it's just our nature. Our nature is if it's happening, I want to understand it because if I can understand it, I can master it. And we want to be in control of everything. And so that's why large segments of the... Ooh, Jesus, that just landed. Large segments of the church reject anything they can't understand. Because if they can't understand it, they can't control it, they want to master everything, and therefore, rather than just accept it, much less experience it, they just said it's not of God. Why? Because we can't understand it. Friends, we are, we are Christians. The whole of our faith is supernatural. 
We're, we're talking about an eternal God who's beyond time, beyond space, not contained in matter. We're talking about a Savior who was born to a teenager in the youth group that had never been with a man. And then he gives, uh, she gives birth, brings forth a baby who grows into a toddler, who grows into an adolescent, who becomes a man. And all during that spectrum, never sinned. Never sinned. Easiest baby in the world for a woman to raise. Never sinned. Did he cry? Yes. Did he need cleansing? Yes. But he never sinned. Had no rebellious streak in him. No terrible twos for the son of man. Just never. I'm not being flippant. I'm trying to tell you that's true. And then... At 30 years old, he leaves the carpenter shop, begins a three-and-a-half-year whirlwind ministry, which involves opening blind eyes, supernatural, causing the deaf to hear, supernatural, curing leprosy, supernatural, restoring limbs, supernatural, preaching like nobody had ever preached. Why? Because he had an abiding unction of the Holy Spirit that unfolded. I mean, when he's 12 years old, he's, he's reasoning with the doctors of the law in the temple. They're debating the book that he wrote, and he's telling them, well, here's what it means. And so all throughout his life, it's all supernatural. He's raising people from the dead. Yes, and then he rises from the dead and shows up supernatural, shows himself alive for 40 days to convince the skeptics. Supernatural. Ascends from a hillside. Supernatural. And then the back end of my Bible says he's going to come again. And you talk about supernatural. Read the back of your Bible, but here's the thing. In the meantime, 21st century, post-enlightenment, Western Christians reject the supernatural. We reject the gifts because they don't make sense or we think they're wrong or they're supernatural, whatever the reason. Friends, the whole thing's supernatural. Unless, of course, for you, it's not supernatural. It's intellectual. It's merely theological. If, if that's the case, that's why you will always struggle with the supernatural. And let me tell you what you need. You need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And you will meet Him. He will stop being a written doctrine and start being the living pulse of your soul. Would you stand to your feet this morning?